Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keep Lefty, program at Victorian Labor College. In the studio is John Lefty. Morning, everybody. Kim Doyle. Good morning. And myself, Chris Gaffney. <coughs> and um, it's past wars we're looking at today. And John's going to start with one that's not discussed much, and that's the Boer War. The Boer War. I'll, I won't be speaking Dutch. I'll try to. You'll you know, try not to be boring. The Boer anyway. War, which I consider to be Australia's first imperialist adventure. Today is the eve of the 100th anniversary of the Anzac landing at Gallipoli in Turkey during World War I. It is famously regarded in Australia and New Zealand as the event which saw the birth of those two countries' national consciousness. However, it wasn't the first war in which Australians fought as representatives of a single nation-state. The Boer War lasted from 1899 to 1902, and from 1901 it was Australia's first imperialist adventure. It was fought in South Africa. Following the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, South Africa was claimed and settled by the British. Dutch farmers, or Boers, had been in this area since the 17th century, and of course Africans had been there much longer. But it would soon become a significant part of the world's biggest ever empire. From 1880 to 1881, there had been a minor war between Britons and Boers, so technically that was the first Boer War. It resulted in some embarrassing setbacks for the British. The 1899-1902 conflict is believed to have cost 60,000 lives, half civilian and half military, and roughly half from each side. The British military, outnumbering the Boer armed forces by 5 to 1, claimed final victory, but the Boers, who refer to the war as the War of Independence, were not forced completely into empire, so they too can claim a victory of sorts. Now, it ultimately took the British a quarter of a million troops, two and a half years, and the equivalent in today's money of £20 billion. But they did ensure the surrender of the 60,000 farmers. That's what these people were, essentially. There are reasons why this first Australian war overseas is given little attention in comparison to World War I, in my opinion. It was a war where no moral righteousness can possibly be claimed. It was a war to steal land and resources, not only from the black Africans already on the land, but also from the Dutch farmers who had settled it. Also, it was a war where the rate of killing didn't come close to that of World War I. For some morbid reason, the massive spilling of blood is used to lay claim to a national coming of age. Furthermore, it is ludicrously claimed by some that World War I was a fight for freedom and democracy. As ludicrous as that is, it would be even sillier if applied to the Boer War. The Boer War was a classic example of capitalist naked self-interest. Often when the mainstream media are, uh, give us these histories of war, they explain what happened, and I've seen a lot of them, especially just recently. They explain what happened in the war chronologically. Rarely do they explain why it happened. The second half of the 19th century saw the discovery of gold in many of the English-speaking lands. The 1848 discovery in California led to a gold rush where 300,000 prospectors came from all over the world to try their luck. They became known as the 49ers. In 1851, it was our turn. The Victorian gold rush saw Little Melbourne rapidly transformed into Australia's biggest and richest city. 
The gold exported to Britain alone in the 1850s paid all of that country's foreign debts and helped lay the foundation for her enormous commercial expansion in the second half of the 1800s. In the 1880s, gold was also found in the parts of South Africa which then were controlled by the Dutch farmers, and these were known as the Boer Republics. British subjects flooded into the territories encouraged by government in search of wealth. Not only that, diamonds had been found in the 1860s. To this day, South Africa is the leading source of the world's diamonds, with one company, De Beers, owning over 80% of the mines. The country also produces massive amounts of platinum, zinc and other minerals. Of course, the bulk of the population now and then is black African. It was their job to provide the labour to actually get these riches out of the ground. So the problem the British ruling class had in 1899 was that the Boers stood in the way of their access to this South African wealth. One of the British leaders of this time was Joseph Chamberlain, father of the discredited Neville, we know Neville from Peace in Our Time, the great uh, appeaser. The senior Chamberlain, Joseph, was an arch-imperialist, with a monocle, medals and stiff upper lip, he really looked the part, and he was determined to make the farmers pay. Chamberlain was also important, and this is, this is uh, crucial here, he was important in getting the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Australia Act through the Westminster Parliament. This act led to the Federation of Australia in 1901. So from 1899 to 1901, there's six Australian colonies each send troops to fight. From 1901, Australia sent a national army for the first time to fight in this war. Another important figure was the Irish Lord Herbert Kitchener. He started his campaign off because he, he, he found some resistance from the Boers. How dare they? <laughs> he started the campaign off by surrounding the Boer farms with barbed wire and setting fire to the farms. Later, he would pretty much invent concentration camps at one point, 140,000 Boer women and children were imprisoned. 26,000 of these would die, 80% of them under the age of 16. In 1915, most people know, Kitchener became famous for the World War I Army recruitment poster, Lord Kitchener Needs You. And in 1917, the US Army ripped this image off for their Uncle Sam Needs You poster. U.S. imperialism has often emulated British imperialism. At the start of the war, Australia's population was 3.5 million. Out of these, 16,000 men were sent to fight, the largest contingent from the empire. But thousands more went independently, and some fought on the Boer side. Probably most of them went independently. Amongst the Australians were 50 Aboriginal trackers who Kitchener had personally asked for. So you had this situation of black men travelling around the world to work for a white army against another white army in what had been a black man's land. They, they wouldn't fight, they would be trackers. There's been a lot of conjecture as to what happened to these trackers. Some say they were forgotten in South Africa, some say they were deliberately left behind, while some say they were denied re-entry to this country because of the white Australia policy. That's the correct answer, I think. Private capitalists were behind the use of national armies to ensure their ongoing and increased profits. The Boer War was a good example of this. The Dutch East India Company had initially installed the Boers in South Africa in the 1600s, but they were small 
in comparison in number to the more dominant British capitalist class. Starting off in 1600, the British East India Company rose to account for half of the world's trade by the time the imperial power had colonised most of India, half of it. The British East India Company had at one time employed its own private army, but it grew so big that it could sway the Royal Navy and the British Army to do its bidding. The company viewed South Africa as a source of um, fortune in its own right, but also as a stepping stone to the trade link between Britain and India. Why should it pay for its own military and business needs when it could get the British public to pay instead? The American socialist of today, Michael, well, a couple of decades ago, the American socialist Michael Parenti has referred to this scenario as the sword and the dollar. And it's still in play today. Now, it's a very interesting theory, and I actually subscribe to it. I'll just go into it very briefly. On, you know, I'd like more time, but anyway. The dollar can follow the sword into imperial conquest, as was the case with Western intervention in the past two and a half decades in Iraq. The sword... Sorry, the dollar followed the sword. But in the case of the Boer War, and there are other wars, the sword followed the dollar. The, you know, the people were already in there and trying to make hay, and just to back them up in goes the armed forces. Of course, in the British case, it wasn't a dollar, it was a pound. doesn't matter. So this is a process which is still in play today. Public wealth, our wealth, is spent on huge armed forces being sent to all parts of the world in the interests of private capitalist greed. It happened back then. It happened, uh, as I just said, in the wars previous uh, at the moment. The people who profit range from the British East India Company 120 years ago to the multinational oil companies of today, but there's many more. But it's interesting, it's much the same characters. You know, things haven't changed really that much. People like Royal Dutch Shell, British Petroleum, and of course the big American giants because Americans dominate now. It's a money spinner for the greedy who don't mind spending 10 of our dollars to earn one of their dollars, 20 of our dollars, 40 of our dollars. They always win. Lenin referred to imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism. I believe the sword and the dollar theory is pretty, just an update of what he meant. The Boer War was Australia's first imperialist adventure, and I don't believe it's much to brag about. Good, good, good. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah, you did it in 10 minutes too. What an achievement. <laughs> <laughs> Just. Well, I'm not directly going to be talking about Anzac Day, but it is about violence. Uh, on, the, on April 18th, which is last Saturday, uh, 200 federal and state police officers raided seven houses in Melbourne, arresting five uh, very young men. The alleged reason for the raids was preventing an imminent terrorist attack. Victorian Acting Chief Commissioner Tim Cartwright alleged that the young men planned to carry out atrocious acts on Anzac Day. The ensuing media frenzy, however, has already significantly obscured the known facts in the case, uh, the facts that are known, which don't seem to be that many. Of the five, three have been charged, two with terrorism-related offences, unless that's been updated recently but neither has been charged with preparing an attack or even planning an attack. What they've actually been charged with is conspiracy to commit acts done in preparation for or planning terrorist acts. And I would argue that these... It's vague, isn't it? Yes. I would argue that these actually amount to thought crimes, really. Yes, I was going to say that. 
For instance, conspiracy could be whinging to friends on social media and expressing your frustration at certain political leaders and what you would hypothetically like to see done to them. Of course, this is only a crime, mainly if you're Muslim, although you could feasibly imagine one day this being applied to the radical left. Uh, for, but for the first time in Victoria, police use what is called a preventative detention order. People heard about that. But they used it to detain one of the men, an 18-year-old from Hampton Park. And These... you don't need to actually charge anybody with anything, do you? No. In the... no, no. No. I think the point is to prevent. Right, right. It's what you might do. Yes, To, to, yes. Pre- to prevent a whole lot of people getting killed. Yes, to prevent the whole idea of, um, you know, innocent until, ple- until you've been proven guilty, basically. Mm. These orders give police the power to detain someone for... Uh, up to 14 days without charging them, as you uh, said, Chris. The 18-year-old was held for three days before being released and rearrested and charged. His father alleges that during the first police raid, police officers beat his son, breaking his arm and ribs. Another arrestee, an Aboriginal teenager, Ethan Cruz, was, according to witnesses, brutally assaulted by police during one of the raids... His father, uh, Glenn, told Fairfax that media, uh, told Fairfax Media that police delivered a boot right in his head and said, "Shut up, you!" Um, and it's a racial slur. And I could hear Ethan getting knocked out cold. Gee. So this is a very young young man, a teenager, and it sounds like it's related to his race. At least that's what his father has reported. So his sister told Fairfax that she woke up to a sniper pointing a gun at my head at 4am. So this is a quote from her. We had all of them come into the house. They kicked in the doors. Tear gas was used and they cleared each room. They pulled my nine-year-old brother out of his bed. His mother said that after they were finished with Ethan, um, Ethan, there was a pool of blood on the floor. So according to, I think this this man has subsequently been released without charge. At least right, that's what right. I've read in the papers. So according to Professor Greg Barton from the Global Terrorism Research Centre, who was speaking to ABC Radio on April 20th, information garnered from someone who is subject to a preventative detention order can't be used in subsequent legal proceedings. But the charges against these two men and the police powers are really amongst the most draconian and limiting in the Western world. And what, what was said and done to this young man, and from the, um, from the sounds of it an injured man, um, while he was in preventative detention, we will probably never know. But if they were prepared to do what witnesses suggested that they did in his own home when there were witnesses there, you can only imagine mm. what they were prepared mm. to do mm. in private. And apparently a 14-year-old boy has also been charged with inciting a terrorist beheading and inciting a terrorist act in the UK in connection with the alleged Anzac Day terrorist plot in Melbourne. Apparently his his arrest came after experts examined electronic devices. The 14-year-old, who is still legally a child and obviously a child, Mm. is believed to be one of the youngest people ever charged with terrorism legislation in the UK. Now, we don't know what these young men in Melbourne or this British boy were thinking, but I don't think people should be arrested for thought crimes. 
and I certainly don't think that children should be arrested for thought crimes. And the nature of the current charges, vague as they are, should be worrying, I think, to everyone. Meanwhile, um, a private Melbourne gym that teaches Israeli army combat techniques is set to teach civilians how to use firearms like snipers in the Israeli Defence Force and Israeli Police and Security Services. It's, I think it costs about $650 to, to go to this wonderful class. Yes, I, the, it's been sold out. The figure that I heard from the age was $599 for the one day. Can you, right. can, can you get a government grant, maybe? Well, you, can, you think the army should subsidise it. I'll speak to Julie Bishop. So the shooting course called Intro to Israeli Tactical uh, Shooting has, like I said, uh, sold out and is being offered by IDF Training, a Caulfield gym co-owned by a former Israeli Defence Force soldier, Avi uh, Yamini. So it's all right for the Zionists to train killers, but Muslims can't even think about it. Hey, I don't want any of them, okay? No, I don't want any <laughs> of them. They're all in the same boat, they're no friends of mine. I don't want any of them. No, no, nor do I, but I mean, there's a I think different standard operating There yes. is a violence yeah. that is accepted and even condoned in society, and that's a violence that is deemed unacceptable or, in some cases, even um, supposedly thinking about violence. Um, apparently, the gym is best known for its courses in Krav Maga, a form of combat training used by the Israeli army. Um, Mr. Yumini said the mentality behind Krav Maga and the tactical shooting techniques used by the IDF are similar. And he said an example would be always moving forwards. It's ch- it's changing the mentality in your head to break away from being a victim to being an aggressor. Now that sounds like the Israeli army to me. The IDF training offered the shooting lessons to anyone on its mailing list subject to them holding a gun licence. Victoria Police uh, was not aware of the course until they were contacted by the media, but a spokeswoman said it is making inquiries with the uh, Oakley Pistol Club, where the training was meant to take place, uh, to make sure the classes comply with legislation. And the spokeswoman said... Participants in any type of handgun activity or practice are required to hold a handgun licence under Section 15 of the Firearms Act 1996 or be a person under the um, instruction and supervision of someone appropriately licensed and comply with the uh, uh, with their legislative responsibilities. So this type of violence is treated completely differently to other types of violence. Right, well, moving directly on to... Uh the celebrations of World War I, that's the only way you can put it, which has an ideological function of rewriting history and justifying Australian involvement in whatever imperialist war happens to be the go. The failed operation of Gallipoli, which cost thousands of lives, has always been exploited as a touchstone of nationalism and military tradition, the day when Australia became a nation, etc., etc. This is directed against anti-war opposition, Never more so than today. Now, during the Vietnam War in the 60s, Anzac Day was widely ridiculed, particularly amongst young people. It uh, it wasn't popular. People saw it as a a way of resurrecting war fever. But it was resurrected in the 1980s by the Labour government of Bob Hawke and Paul Keating. And uh, they demanded the reinvention of World War I, not as a a war for king and empire which is was what it was about, 
but which in one, despite all the opera uh, its horrors, the Australian nation and the national identity were forged. No reference was ever made to the real causes of the conflict in the breakdown of capitalism or the imperialist rivalries for empire and colonies, which is what it was about. In a Remembrance Day speech on November 11, 2013, Keating epitomised his outlook when he declared that World War I was a war devoid of any issue. Australia, he said, on the, on the contrary, was a country free of racial hatred to let the Aboriginals. The uh, Australian legend reinforced our own cultural negotiations of independence, mateship and ingenuity, of resilience and courage in adversity. Now, this argument, which is still being pushed today, was full of absurdities and lies. In fact, the Australian national state was founded on white Australia racism, and the Labor governments of Andrew Fisher and Billy Hughes sent thousands of young men to their deaths to maintain the global position of British imperialism and secure Australian colonial interests in the Pacific. Nevertheless, Keating came under fire not for his historical distortions, but for his dismissal of World War I as devoid of any virtue. In other words, not only was it a neutral a war devoid of anything, it was now a positive good. A new ideological wind was blowing as Australian imperialism became more and more integrated into the US pivot to Asia and its planning against China, the Australian political establishment is reviving and seeking to inculcate militarism and patriotism. And the Murdoch press has been at the forefront of this new historical revisionism. Paul Kelly is typical, insisting that Australia's involvement in World War I was not only necessary, but morally justified. The war, he declares, was, quote, a struggle over who would rule Europe, and that meant who would rule much of the world. Australia was an integral part of the British Empire, has national interests, critical national interests at stake. End of quote. The title of his essay, which is called Born in Blood, says a great deal. For the Australian ruling class, the sort of 62,000 Australian soldiers was a necessary price to be paid for international recognition. In the lost age of empires and colonies, Kelly declares, Australia was a young nation yet to prove itself in a world where baptism by blood was a national ritual. Well, now this is just fascist gobbledygook about blood and iron and honour and what. But it's literal to them in that, like Billy Hughes went to the negotiations after the war, say, we have 60,000 dead, give us something. That's yeah, right, exactly. It's, it's, it's gone back to the ancient belief in their blood sacrifice exactly, to God. Exactly. You know, this is nonsense. German aggression and the trampling of little Belgium, hmm. along with the defence of democracy, were the catch cries of wartime propaganda. The real question is not who fired the first shot, but the character of the war. It rose from the fundamental contradictions of capitalism between the global economy and the outmoded nation-state system. Britain and France were defending their colonial empires. That's what they were doing. And the exploitation of colonial masses against a rising and dynamic German imperialism, who declared that we want a place in the sun, was the words Mm -hmm. of Kaiser Bill. Mm -hmm. As for the defence of democracy, Britain and France were in an alliance with the Russian aristocracy, long regarded throughout Europe as the bastion of the deepest reaction and oppression. In fact, the strategic aim of Gallipoli, for which so many young men died, was to come to the military assistance of the Tsarist regime, a fact 
completely absent in all the current lauding of the sacrifice of Anzac soldiers. In the early months of the war, the Russian army suffered major reversals and defeat, with over a million troops killed, wounded or taken prisoner. On January the 2nd, Grand Duke Nicholas, Commander-in-Chief of the Russian armies, appealed to Britain for assistance against the Turkish army, which had launched an offensive in the Caucasus. After a failed navy attempt in February 1915 to force a passage through the Dardanelles to the Black Sea, the seizure of the Gallipoli pensioner was conceived, with the aim of capturing Constantinople to take pressure off the Russians. Yes. No suggestion of democracy there. It's a diversionary tactic, I think. That's right. The nine-month land campaign that began on April the 25th quickly reached the stalemate in the face of the Turkish resistance. We're not told the fact that the Turks lost 82,692 people, the British 21,000 plus, French 9,000 plus, as well as 8,700 Australians, 2,700 New Zealand and 1,300 Indian troops. The predatory character of the border war aims was revealed in the very secret treaties reached between Russia, Britain and Australia. Now, the Bolsheviks, when they took power in 1917, Mm. published all these. (laughs) So far from being a war for freedom, Russia's claims agreed to by uh, uh, Britain and France included Constantinople, the Dardanelles and other Turkish territories. Like Julian Assange for today. So that the Tsarist yeah. d- dictatorship could realise its long-held ambition of a warm water port with access to the Mediterranean. As part of this great power rivalry, Australian imperialism had its own interests, which went further than the siege of German colonial possessions in the South Pacific. Ke- Kelly, in his essay, is very open about the considerations that drove the ruling classes, who feared a further challenge to their own economic and strategic issues in the Pacific from Germany and Japan, and had a big stake in wanting British predominance in the region. Now, if Kelly raises these calculations, it is because similar considerations concern the Australian ruling class today. Only the the army isn't Germany today, it's Russia and China. Replace Germany and Japan with Russia and China and you get the picture. In his essay in the Australian Supplement, Geoffrey Blaney, who, like Kelly, justifies World War I as a necessary war, draws the comparison that Germans' ascent was dramatic rather like China's today. So the connection just isn't in our heads, it's in their heads. This false historical analogy is increasingly exported to portray China as a new aggressive power and to justify the Americans' provocative actions in inflaming flashpoints throughout the region. Drowning up the old rationalisations for Australian employment in World War I serves the same political purposes as the ideological campaigns underway in Germany and Japan to falsify and relativise the crimes of the Nazi regime and the German militarists during World War II. And as a footnote, in New Zealand... I've got three minutes. In, in New Zealand, they've built two, four years, taken four years to build two exhibitions about the First World War. And one of them has been designed by the Lord of the Rings director, Peter Jackson. And uh, they're, they're billed as the greatest World War I show on earth. It was a circus. Well, it's good because he's good at myth and legend, isn't he? That's right. Their purpose is to rewrite the history of the war in order to glorify New Zealand's involvement. 
This agenda was made clear not by the New Zealanders, but by Tony Abbott, who several times made pointed comparisons between Anzac's campaign 100 years and the present day's participation in what he called the Sons of Anzac, that is, in the US-led war in Iraq. Jackson attempted to sanitise the purpose of his Great War exhibition. In fact, it's not an objective history of World War I. It largely has the character of an army recruitment display, particularly aimed at the kiddies. Yes, yes. <coughs> it begins with a, a reproduction of a pre-war mm. Belgian village, mm. implying, of course, that the war was, was all about saving gallant little Belgium. Mm-hmm. Rubbish. There was detailed trench reproductions, but few dead people mm. in these exhibitions. Mm-hmm. They kept mm-hmm. that out. It was mm-hmm. not good for the kiddies to no, see the actual disgusting. results of well, real Well, then they'd war. have to be MA, wouldn't it, rather than mm. PG? Mm-hmm. Quite. According to Jackson, World War War was a hopeless war. It was a war for no reasons. This is rubbish. As Trotsky wrote, the outcome of imperialism, of the attempt on the part of the capitalist class of each nation to foster their greed for profit by the exploitation of human labour and of the, <coughs> of the national resources of the entire globe. Both wars were the product of contradictions within capitalism. As a junior partner of British imperialism, the New Zealanders joined World War I to expand their wealth and seize more Pacific colonies. That was their intention, not democracy. The invasion of German Samoa, which yes. was New Zealand's first action in World War I, is not mentioned. Yeah. In either of the the yeah, Wellington the, exhibitions. The Germans had a few colonies around, and New Guinea. That's right. Yeah. There was also, both exhibitions were completely silent on the widespread opposition to the World War I mm-hmm. international, mm-hmm. including two defeated referendums in Australia. And a huge general strike in 1917. There was. Quite correct. In New yes. South Wales, a mass strike there. No it spread nationally. The also, the Great War Exhibition makes no mention of the Russian Revolution. The what? Uh, the Russian Revolution, <laughs> yes, quite. The overthrow of capitalism by the Russian working class. And uh, it was that event that prompted the end of the war, because an even bigger threat than German imperialism was, of course, workers' this revolution, yeah, well, because I mean, that would end the game completely. Yes, yes. It united all the powers. The they second united ex- everybody. Well, the capitalists, yeah, yeah. of course. Fifteen... The second exhibition, called Gallipoli, The Scale of Our War, is an intensely nationalist depiction of the Allied failed attempt to invade Turkey. Uh, This has been portrayed as a pivotal moment in the forging of our national identity, such as mateship. Mm. This is, how can I put it, just rubbish. I think one of the worst things is that children, children, primary school children, are being taught that this, this war, whichever war it is, is somehow glorious, is somehow a good thing, and I think this is evil. Oh, I think it's evil. Yeah, it's like Wilfred Owen, the Dulce e Decoromess, the poem about how, you know, the old lie that it is sweet and fitting to die for one's mm. country, and he sacrifice. died in that war. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Noble sacrifice is ridiculous. The, only, the other thing that's mentioned from the New Zealand one was, of course, the involvement of Maori soldiers at Gallipoli, despite being forced to admit that large numbers of Maoris refused to join the army. They don't mention that a hundred Maori men were imprisoned for resisting conscription. Now mention that in these exhibitions. There was a docu- sorry, there was a documentary was it last night, the night before, saying that there was Aborigines who pretended there were Maoris to go. You heard about that? So they were Aborigines who pretended they were Maoris in order to go to the war as fighters. Right, right, mm. right, right. Um, 
This is a, a, a carnal and orgy for the war buffs. It's got nothing to do with historical truth, and we should treat with utter disgust the commemorations that are taking place at Gallipoli, where naive teenagers are mouthing rubbish about it was fought for our freedom. Rubbish. Rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. And I hope we've made that perfectly clear today. It's rubbish, is it? <laughs> it's rubbish. Just in case I, you hadn't got it. No, look, it's very serious. It's re- but it's rubbish. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.